Science Talk will begin after this brief message. We are Janssen, the pharmaceutical companies of Johnson & Johnson. We bring together cutting-edge science and the most creative minds in the industry to think differently about how diseases can be not just treated, but predicted, preempted, and stopped in their tracks. Solving complex problems and moving forward is about taking a different approach. It's about how we work and who we work with. Because at Janssen, we're creating a future where disease is a thing of the past. This is Scientific American Science Talk. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Before the railroads, traveling 60 miles was a huge distance. Also, people kept time by the position of the sun. So if you were to travel 13 miles east or west, you would actually have to change your watch by a minute. We lived in these small pockets, separated by distance and also by time. That's Anissa Ramirez. She's a materials scientist with a doctorate from Stanford and a science writer. And she's the author of the 2020 book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. The book has recently been named one of Smithsonian Magazine's 10 Best Science Books of 2020. It's also been named an Amazon Best Science Book of 2020. And even though it's written for adults, it's a finalist for the AAAS Subaru 2021 Young Adult Science Book Award. I called her at her home in New Haven, Connecticut. I really enjoyed the book. It is very well written and entertaining and informative and accessible, which is always nice. Tell me about the structure of the book. Oh, that's a great question. And thanks for asking. No one really asked me about the structure of the book. And, and the architecture was important to me. Um, it's eight chapters. Each chapter is it, it's centered around a specific material. But each chapter is actually named with a human verb because I'm really trying to get across how that action was shaped. And then within each chapter, uh, you learn about some event in history where that invention was critical. Maybe things would have been different if it didn't exist or if it did exist. And then you learn about the origin story of that invention. And then lastly, which I think is the most important thing, is how that invention shaped society or shaped us. Yeah, because there's the title of the book, The Alchemy of Us, but the subtitle is how Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. And that's really so key and the through line to everything in the book. Absolutely. I mean, that could have been the main title, but it wasn't as catchy. Let's talk about a few of the things. And uh, the first one I'd love, love to talk about is the, the issue of film and skin tone. Well, who would have thought? I mean, something that we all love, photography, especially now with all these selfies, it ends up that long ago when cameras took pictures using film, there was actually a bias in the chemical formulation. It was designed to best pick up skin that was lighter. And this was discovered in the 60s and 70s when African-American mothers were noticing that the class picture didn't look very good. Um, their children didn't come out as well as the other children. And what they found out was that actually the, the film had been tailored for lighter skin. And so that's one of the stories that I talk about in The Alchemy of Us, about how this, what we think is a benign technology, can have our bias captured into it. And then you have the folks who are working and um, the things that, that they discover about what's going on in South Africa. 
Right. Well, that was one of the hardest and probably one of the most important stories that I have in the the Alchemy of Us. But it ends up that uh, Caroline Hunter, who is an African-American young woman who's a chemist working at Polaroid, she discovered that her employer was uh, selling its instant camera technology in the late 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s to the South African government. And at that time, they had an apartheid system. And it ends up that every black South African had to carry with them a passbook. And this passbook controlled where they could go, where they couldn't go. And at the heart of the passbook was a picture that was developed by Polaroid. And uh, they decided to do something about it. They did something. They created a group, the Polaroid Revolutionary Workers Movement, and became activists. And this is before the Internet. So they passed, they spread the word using newsletters and flyers and then having rallies and then going on the news and alerting the city of Cambridge about what this major employer was doing. And soon this became picked up on major news channels as well. And and student groups started to become part of it as well. And it took seven years, but eventually Polaroid uh, stopped selling its cameras to South Africa. And was that a significant action in the the fight against apartheid or, or was it merely, and I say merely symbolic, but symbolism is really important too? Oh, it was both. Uh, uh, you know, the cameras were a tool of oppression. So, so removing them from South Africa was important. It was actually uh, when Polaroid pulled out of South Africa, it was actually the beginning of the dismantling of apartheid, both symbolic and also financially. So um, so and also Polaroid came around at first. They were they would say, hey, we don't really have much involvement with South Africa. We don't sell any cameras. And eventually they had to admit that they actually did. So it was uh, it was significant on, on many, many different uh, levels. The chapter ends and you don't go into something that's sort of related that uh, I I figured I'd bring up. And that is that a lot of the sensor technology we have today still doesn't recognize certain skin colors. It's pretty amazing. And, you know, I'll tell you a story. I'm working on another book uh, to talk about how there's bias in technology. And what got me thinking about this is that I go to this airport on the East Coast quite a bit. And when I want to use the faucet in the restroom, it won't work for me. I have to open up my hands. I have to outstretch my hands so that the lighter side of my palm is in front of the light sensor, and then the water will come out of the automatic faucet. So bias exists in our technologies. We have blind spots, and so that's why it's very important for people to uh, be on diverse groups so that we make sure that these blind spots are addressed. Yeah, I'm not sure a lot of uh, white people know that for a lot of dark-skinned people, the the stuff that we take for granted the the faucets, the soap dispensers. They sometimes don't work. They don't work. Even even the webcams that follow people, that doesn't work. Being picked up by digital cameras, you know, sometimes they'll put a little square around your face to say, oh, this person is being adjusted. You know, that doesn't happen for me. So, yeah, there's a lot of bias in these technologies. Another story that you tell in the book is about Thomas Edison. And because this is Scientific American here, I, I wanted to talk about Thomas Edison visiting Scientific American's offices with one of his inventions. Right. Well, yeah, Scientific American is definitely part of that story of the phonograph. The phonograph was one of Edison's favorite inventions. Uh, When we think about Edison, we think about his light bulb, but he loved the ability to capture sound because something like that didn't exist. Uh, there There were ways to capture sound, but he found out how to capture sound and also replay it. And so he worked all night on this 
invention, putting it together after many different iterations. And then he took the train from New Jersey to New York to Scientific American to show this invention. And as you can imagine, people, whenever he showed up, crowds would form. In fact, uh, people would say that the floor started to squeak because there were so many people around him trying to see what he what he created. And he had a message, you can think of it as the first voicemail, uh, where everyone listened to it and they knew that this was going to be the beginning of a new era. In fact, Scientific American actually stopped the presses to say, hey, we have entered a new era because now sound is now immortal. I love the idea of Scientific American stopping the presses. I don't know if they did that very often, but it was part of the story. Yeah, and back then, Scientific American was more like a newspaper than uh, than it is today, where it's a, a monthly magazine. So that's that's a, a great piece of our history at Scientific American is that tale of Edison. Uh, the book talks a lot about railroads in in different contexts. Let's talk about steel and railroad and the connections to time and how we keep time now. And we probably take for granted how we think about time now, but it's completely different from how it was 150 or or 200 years ago. It's certainly different from 200 years ago. Absolutely. Well, before the railroads, traveling 60 miles was a huge distance. So that's the first thing. Also, uh, people kept time by the position of the sun. So if you were to travel 13 miles east or west, you would actually have to change your watch by a minute. So we were kind of in this weird situation where we lived in these small pockets separated by distance and also by time. Now, when the railroads came along, uh, there needed to be a way to be more uniform about time because if you wanted to get on a train, you needed to make sure you got on that train. And if time was slightly different, well, you'd miss your train. So the railroads were very important because they, they instituted the four time zones that we have in the United States. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, the government, but it was actually the railroads because they wanted to reduce the amount of confusion from, from traveling. So the railroads were actually not only purveyors of information and products, but also of timekeeping. And steel was so fundamental to that change because without steel, you don't have the railroad tracks. Absolutely. I mean, railroads have been around for a long time, and the original path that uh, they were on was, was dirt. And then it was wood, and then it was iron. Wood didn't last very long. Iron lasted for a couple of years, but when you put steel, those railroads made out of steel, the rail lines made out of steel lasted 18 years. And when that happened, you didn't have to worry about rebuilding the track every couple of years. You could just focus on building business and extending and growing. And so steel allowed the country to expand uh, and, and connect different ends of the country in ways that hadn't happened before. And I think you quote somebody in the book about Human beings were not meant to go more than 15 miles an hour. <laughs> I know. I Remember now, this is stagecoaches. Stagecoaches could go about 18 miles per hour, and that was considered to be like, whew, fast. That's so fast. And when you have trains going 30 miles and 40 miles, this is this, you know, people would complain, I'm unable to see out the window because things are going so quickly. When it was new, uh, it was disconcerting. And so a lot of people wrote about um, how uh, the railroads sped up things and made it so that we couldn't appreciate the outside. Uh, taking a stagecoach from Boston to New York, which 
you can now do if you you know if there's no traffic you can get from uh the bronx to boston in three hours but um you know the uh the idea of doing it by coach and taking a week and not only taking a week it, it's like being in a rock tumbler and sometimes the person who's driving is drunk so you don't know if you're gonna fall uh you know if it's gonna flip over and you'd have to wake up early in the morning to to get on the stagecoach and you know, there wasn't any shock absorbers. So it was it was painful. It was very painful. And if you traveled anywhere, like, you know, going from New York, uh, New York to Boston, you want to stay there for a significant amount of time because it took you so long to get there. You would stay for a month to make it worth the trip. You said, the, you know, early in the morning, but it was more like middle of the night. You might have to get up two thirty, three o'clock in the morning to, right. to catch the next right. stage of the stage. That's right. That's right. I, I meant very, I mean, it's still dark. And, and if the uh, stagecoach, you know, fell into a, what we would call a pothole, you would have to get out and help. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very different, very different. So um, Abraham Lincoln is murdered. And again, the railroads come into play in a, uh, in a national kind of unification. Absolutely. I mean, you know, in the 1860s, most people hadn't seen Lincoln's face because photography wasn't that popular, but they loved him and they wanted to see him. They wanted to send him off. And the only way that felt satisfying is for his body to travel across the United States. And the railroads did that. So there was this long funeral procession going from uh, Washington, D.C. and hitting various states before he, his final resting place in Springfield, Illinois, where people would stand along the railroad lines and waiting for the train to pass, the pass would the train would travel about twenty miles per hour or less, so that people could uh, see it. Or if uh, if they were in a major city where there were processions, his body would be taken out of the car, and then he would go to these processions where people could stand on very very long lines and and see the body that way. But for those who couldn't, if they lived in the country or they lived in a city that wasn't uh, on you know one of the designated cities for for this uh, his cortege. Then, uh, then they would stand by the railroad tracks, and sometimes that would be in the middle of the night. And and you'd have hundreds of people lining the tracks to just to catch a glimpse of the train that was carrying right. that was carrying his body. And so that right. really was this um, this national event, all happening within you know a few days. That was pretty much unlike anything the country had ever seen before. That's absolutely correct, because although newspapers were all over the country, it took a while for news to get to different pockets. So in a matter of a few days, everyone had this unified experience of either seeing the train go by or seeing the casket or knowing someone. This is what this was the conversation that everyone was having. We have that all the time now because we can have events happen in an instant. But this was one of the first cases where the whole country was unified and it was because of Lincoln. Seriously, now it happens almost on a daily basis where, you know, a fly lands on somebody's head. <laughs> exactly. And everybody is talking about everybody it. Everybody knows day. about it. <laughs> right, right. But back then, this was a unique event. On, on like page two of the introduction, you talk about your own experience and how you got involved with material science and and science in general um first you talk about how important certain television programs were for you when you were a kid well absolutely i i grew up in new jersey 
And we would get television from New York. And our favorite station was Channel 13. And we'd watch things like The Electric Company and Sesame Street. But as I got older, one of my favorite shows was 321 Contact. And 321 Contact's part of my own origin story because uh, there was a repeating segment called the, the Bloodhound Gang. It had an African-American girl solving problems with her friends. And when I saw her, I saw my reflection. Uh, in the early 80s, there weren't too many African-American faces on television that were positive. And so when I found out that she was doing science and I see a black girl using her brain, I said, you know what? I think that this could be something for me. So my origin story comes from a television program. And you also liked popular entertainment like Star Trek and Bionic Man and and absolutely uh, yeah or the Bionic Woman. I'm sorry, the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman, right? Right. And Star Trek only the one with Spock. Right. And then you talk in that introduction about your own pursuit of a, a science education. And can you go through that a little bit because it's you know your story and it's a special story and the way things worked out. Um, well, I was a kid that loved science. I had all these questions. I would do these little science projects. I had a chemistry kit, which I loved. Uh, sometimes my grandmother would take me on trips to the, you know, the Central Park and to the museums. You know, I just I had a lovely, wonderful childhood in the world of science and did well in grammar school and in high school. And I was on my way to becoming a scientist, which was my life dream. Um, but when I hit those introductory courses back at Brown University, um, my dream was was about to die. Uh, I wasn't doing well at all. I was a top student when I was back in Jersey City at St. Dominic's, and here I was not a top student at all. And, and there were many people around me who were dropping out of these classes. And if you drop out of these classes, then any dream you have of being a medical doctor or, or an engineer or a chemist, those go away too because these were prerequisite courses. So I was really in trouble. Um, fortunately, I stumbled onto some really great teachers, spent a lot of time in the library, and was able to turn things around. Uh, but then I was still looking to figure out what kind of scientist I wanted to be. And I was sitting in this class called Introduction to Material Science, which was, which was a prerequisite course. I wasn't expecting much from it because a lot of the prerequisite courses had been quite boring. But on the first day, the professor said something that completely blew me away. He said, the reason why we don't fall through the floor... And the reason why my sweater is blue and the reason why the lights work all has to do with the interaction of atoms. And if you can figure out that, you can get them to do new things. Now, he hit me square in, in, in between the eyes because I never thought about the world that way, but it was absolutely true. Everything around me was made up of atoms and they're in charge of our world. These things that we cannot see, these things that are, if I were to grab one of my hairs and whittle it 100,000 times, one of those slivers would be the thickness of an atom. These things that we can never see with our eye control our world. And so it was that moment that I said, I think I need to learn more about material science. And that was what put me on the path to becoming the material scientist that I am today. You know, the, we're, we're so fortunate if we run into a teacher like that who suddenly can grab us by the lapels and shake us into mm. some kind of uh, conscious state. Right, right. I think, I think teachers are amazing. But I, I often worry about people who don't get great teachers. Like, look at all the inventions that didn't happen because courses are taught poorly or people didn't bump into the right teacher. And so I feel lucky, but I don't think that luck should be the formula for one's success. Absolutely. I know that you're, you're working on uh, 
another book that will come out one of these days about somebody who you and I both revere, and that's an inventor named Jim West. Jim West, who's making this call possible because he's the inventor behind the condenser microphone. Uh, Two billion of these things are made every year. They're in cell phones, telephones, computers, toys, hearing aids. Um, No one knows about him. And so I'm writing a picture book about him just so that because he has such a very interesting uh, origin story, but also so that people will know about this hidden figure who's made something that we all rely on in our everyday. I had the uh, the pleasure and privilege of meeting him at the Inventors Hall of Fame in Akron. And this was before we were doing podcasts, but I had a cheap little digital recorder on me and I I interviewed him briefly just so that I could interview him using the microphone that he invented, which I I just wanted to do. I thought it was such a cool thing. That's so meta. I mean, that conversation wouldn't have happened without his invention. You know, that's that's very cool. Two billion a year. And we all use them every freaking day. It's amazing. Every day. Yeah. And, you know, he found it. It's sort of found by accident. I mean, he was being observant, but he found this thing by accident. And, and that's what's so wonderful about it, too. Um, if he wasn't as great as, at observing phenomena, it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have existed. Right. I mean, you in the book, you talk about Alexander Fleming and penicillin. And that case, as well as Jim West's, uh, reminds me of Louis Pasteur's famous quote, uh, chance favors the prepared mind. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great quote. Yeah, because, you know, you're not going to recognize something uh, unless you have had some kind of background that enables you to see it. You know, I often think about what we're what we're all missing every day that's just passing by us because we don't have the requisite background to appreciate what it is. You know, whether that's in the natural world or some kind of phenomenon that we're seeing in our kitchens, you know, but there's a lot going on that we perhaps miss every day because of that uh, lack of of instruction that we've had or just a lack of background with it. And, and, and there's nothing you can really do about some of that because we can't possibly know everything. But it is something that kind of haunts me every once in a while. It, it's true, though. There are many layers to this existence that we have that we don't understand. But But fortunately, we have people like Jim West and many of the inventors that I highlight in The Alchemy of Us who are just paying attention to the right thing at the right time to make these discoveries. So this is why we have to, you know, teach kids that it's okay to fail. It's okay to sit with something for a long time. You know, we're so distracted with our devices and the like, you know, this wouldn't have happened. Some of these inventions wouldn't have happened if they had, you know, Twitter. (laughs) Yes. Another, another thing that Twitter has done to make everything worse. (laughs) I like Twitter, but, you know, I, I worry about the future sometimes. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I'm on Twitter way too much, but I and I do like some aspects of it. But uh, it also concerns me that we're not paying attention to other things when maybe we should. But anyway, I want to give you the last word. Anything else you'd like to say? Well, The Alchemy of Us is an unusual book because although it's about science, it's really great stories. And I, I took that approach because I really wanted people who don't necessarily think that science is for them to take a peek at, and have another shot at science. You know, it's, it's talking about the human side of science. Who are these inventors? Why did they create something? And lastly, how did their invention change us? 
That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.